You're listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract, the official podcast of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract is produced for your enjoyment and is focused on the latest journal-published research and science in the field of addiction medicine. Remember to add us to your favorites in iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at ASAMorg and Facebook. Now, let's go beyond the abstract. Welcome to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. This is your host, Dr. Sean McNeil, and today I'm joined by Dr. Ashish Takrar. He's an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of General Internal Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also an addiction medicine specialist. Dr. Takrar, I'd like to welcome you, and I want to open up the show by asking you to tell us about yourself and to describe your journey in the field of addiction medicine. Yeah, you know, my first exposure to the field was in college. Uh, a history professor invited some of us to volunteer at a syringe service program. It was Prevention Point Pittsburgh, and um, it was actually doing the direct kind of service provision for people who use drugs that really turned me on to the field of medicine overall and convinced me I might want to work directly with clients or patients. Um, And then over the course of my residency in internal medicine, I was at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Uh, We cared for a lot of patients uh, struggling with substance use disorders. And I just found that there was a huge divide between evidence-based best practice that I knew we should be giving these patients and what it looked like they were actually receiving. Um, I had the benefit of doing a little, you know, an elective rotation with the experts at Johns Hopkins Bayview, um, and I kind of got to see what um, top-rate addiction care looked like, and I realized we really weren't offering patients for that, and so it really motivated me to want to get specialist training and to continue to pursue care for patients with addiction uh, for the rest of my career. Great. Now, looking at this paper, of course, you know, fentanyl misuse is a huge topic, Your paper looks at fentanyl concentration and relates this back to the withdrawal process. Uh, Can you explain fentanyl concentration and why it may be an important marker? Well, we wanted to look at it to see if it was important at all, actually. Um, I think we know from other research that fentanyl seems to last in the body uh, anywhere from five to seven, sometimes even more days from last use. And we wanted to know if that actual concentration had any clinical meaning. So you can compare this to something like cannabis. We know folks who have regular cannabis use will kind of continue to show uh, THC in their urine for days or weeks, but we don't generally think of that as being relevant clinically. Um, we don't kind of think of that having much of an effect for patients, but we wanted to see is that also going to be true for fentanyl in the urine? And could we find a clinical correlate of higher fentanyl levels in the urine to what patients are actually experiencing? Okay. And um, even though this will cut straight to the results, what did you discover about the relevance of fentanyl concentration? At the highest level, we found what we kind of had expected to find. We found that patients who had higher urine fentanyl concentrations had less severe opioid withdrawal. What we're interpreting that to mean is that the amount of fentanyl in the urine seems like it might 
in indicate how much fentanyl is actually active still in the body. And you can think of it in the opposite direction as well. If patients have lower amounts of fentanyl in their urine, that means they probably have less fentanyl active still in their body. And we found that those patients were more likely to have more severe withdrawal. Okay. Thanks for explaining that. And, you know, it's nice to see this measured and clinically correlated. I think so. And I think there are a lot of reasons why it might have not turned out as expected, right? We did not actually measure the um, the different um, rates of metabolism fentanyl from these individuals. We also were not actually even measuring the amount of uh, creatinine in the urine, which can be used as a proxy for how dilute the urine was. We also weren't measuring all the different medications uh, individuals were exposed to. So there's a lot we did not control for because this was just a retrospective study. Despite all that noise, we were still able to find that these, you know, the amount of fentanyl in the urine seems to have a clinical correlate. So I think that's actually useful and points towards a potential whole line of research to understand um, how we can better use these, the amount of fentanyl in biologic samples to better treat these patients. Very good. Now, do you think that this should inform clinical practice? And by that, I mean, do you believe that we should be measuring fentanyl concentrations, say, upon admission to a detox or a rehab program? I don't think we're at that point yet. Uh, it's hard for me to say what exactly someone would do with a urine concentration that's significantly higher compared to one that's lower just by itself. I still think this is something that needs to be confirmed with some prospective studies and I think needs to be built on a little bit more. Um, I think we could be close to that though. Um, and one potential area where this could help is when we think about our approaches to starting buprenorphine or methadone. So one of, I think the most surprising findings for me in this paper was that yes, overall, higher fentanyl levels were correlated with less withdrawal. But there was still a strong proportion. So 20% of uh, patients who had cow score greater than 13, so pretty significant withdrawal, they actually still had high urine fentanyl concentrations. So it seems like there is a minority of patients who continue to have severe withdrawal despite having high fentanyl levels in their urine. And I think this could point to some future applications to understanding, is this a minority of patients that seem to have trouble with traditional buprenorphine starts? Could these be the patients that, yes, they have withdrawal, but they still have fentanyl active, and that's why they might have some trouble with a traditional bup start. So this is something that we're hoping future research can help us understand. And so we can say, yes, in the future, maybe someone's coming to the to a treatment program, they want to start buprenorphine, and maybe in the future, a urine or serum fentanyl level could help understand the readiness to start buprenorphine, or could inform which approach we use to start buprenorphine or dose methadone. All right. And I see where you um, mentioned that fentanyl concentration over 1,000 nanograms per milliliter really couldn't be measured. It just resulted in a greater than 1,000 value. So do you believe that this opens the door to further interpretation if we can get better, more accurate concentration results on the higher end? Absolutely. This is one of the challenges with 
um, using retrospective data. Um, you know, if we were prospectively collecting this, we could have continued to dilute out the urine and gotten an, you know, an actual quantitative number for those. I think this lab test was developed at a time when fentanyl was just in lower concentrations in the unregulated drug supply. I think this points to how fast the landscape of synthetic drugs is changing and how different it is based on region. Um, I think one of our goals of this paper is to try to move uh, the field beyond just thinking about fentanyl present or not present and to think in a little bit more of a nuanced way about how much fentanyl people are actually exposed to. Um, because yes, fentanyl was present in the drug supply five, 10 years ago in Philadelphia, but the amount of fentanyl we're now seeing seems to be much higher for our patients. And so, yeah, in the future, I'm hoping if we can actually get more accurate numbers rather than just greater than a thousand, I think that will really help us better understand this phenomenon. Yeah. And of course, you know, we're always looking at newer compounds that are available like norfentanil. So do you want to comment on the role that norfentanil played in this study? Yeah. So, you know, I'll tell you a little bit behind the scenes here. Um, our group of co-authors and I, we really spent a lot of time trying to think through what the best measure here was. Would it be fentanyl, the fentanyl, norfentanil ratio, norfentanil? Um, first off, I'll say that we know most fentanyl is first metabolized into norfentanil before it's being cleared by the body. About 90% of it leaves the body as norfentanil. We also have some pretty good studies from mostly animal models um, suggesting that norfentanil is not an active opioid. So, um, you know, we don't think norfentanil is actually binding to the mu opioid receptors in any major way. We do think that norfentanil can be used um, potentially to help us understand the amount of recent fentanyl exposure, since most of that fentanyl does get metabolized to norfentanil within hours. And so in all of our um, controlled analyses here uh, in the paper, uh, we did include norfentanil as a variable. And so we basically tried to normalize to norfentanil being either high or low. Um, and so our hope is that this, you know, by normalizing for norfentanil, we're able to at least get closer to isolating the effects of just fentanyl in the urine. Very good. Um, so given your results in this study, in what way do you think your findings might inform clinical practice and what recommendations might you have for the clinicians that are listening? I think we, this, that's a good question. So I, I think one of the most important takeaways for clinicians is to think carefully about how much fentanyl um, patients are using um, and to try to think through what impact they might have on their experiences in treatment. Um, right now, I don't think that a clinician ordering a urine fentanyl level is necessarily going to be the most useful thing. But I think asking patients about how much they use and about their experiences in treatment, I think can help us understand some of the heterogeneity and experiences. If you compare someone who's only using a little bit of uh, unregulated opioids compared to a lot. And that might seem like a very basic idea, but I think a lot of our treatment protocols still treat these patients with a one size fits all approach, right? We typically just have one dosing approach for methadone or buprenorphine or other uh, opioid withdrawal meds. And I think um, this study, I think, helps support the idea of taking a more personalized approach to patients 
Um, right now, probably based on how much they're reporting that they're using, but hopefully eventually that'll be informed by more quantitative assessments of how much fentanyl they've been exposed to recently in their urine or serum. Well, I want to thank Dr. Takar for being a guest on our podcast. Dr. Takar's paper can be found in the July-August issue of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. This ends today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. All of today's show links can be found in the show notes. Remember, you can preview additional abstracts at journalofaddictionmedicine.com. This program was produced by the American Society of Addiction Medicine.